This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. In 1854, one man arrived on the Dorset coast under the cover of darkness. Met by a faithful servant, he then travelled inland and proceeded to break in to one of the most splendid stately homes in the country. But this was no common burglar. This was William John Banks, and the house he was breaking into was his own, Kingston Lacey, a fabulously dramatic property furnished by one of the most brilliant of British eccentrics, whose story can be tracked down in the estate in Dorset that I'm exploring today. Kingston Lacey is a grand Italianate palazzo stuffed full of the finest paintings, furniture and artefacts from all over the world, collected by Banks family members who owned this house for 350 years. But it was William John Banks who in the mid-19th century turned Kingston Lacey into the treasure trove that you'll find today. This extraordinary house is a testament to William Banks' obsession for exploring and collecting in Europe and beyond. I'm being met here today by Bernie King, who's the assistant steward here. Hi, Bethany. Hi, Please Bernie. come in. Thank you so much. Welcome to Kingston Lacey. In through the front door, that's how I like it. My goodness, look at this. I don't think I've ever come in this entrance before. Already you come in and it feels like you've walked into some sort of almost kind of Greco-Roman temple. Absolutely. Well, William John Banks transformed what was essentially a red brick mansion into his vision of an Italianate palazzo. He used the fashionable architect Sir Charles Barry, dug down eight feet outside the front to turn what were the cellars into this grand entrance hall. And then as his visitors came in, they would have been taken through into the inner hall onto the marble staircase. And what year is he doing all of this? This is in the 1830s till the 1850s. He didn't actually go on the grand tour as most people did, did he? He did it in a slightly unconventional way. Absolutely, yeah. He visited places like Portugal and Italy. He went to Spain with the Duke of Wellington. He wasn't very interested in in the fighting, but he spent a lot of time going round looking at Spanish art. Well, even just standing here in the entrance hall, you get the sense he's a man who loves romances, who loves stories. And I can hear I'm being tempted in by the sound of a clock ticking. Can we go and explore we beyond? We certainly can. Well, you're taking me up. What feels to me like a very un-English staircase in its proportions. It's much more Mediterranean, this wide, low steps. Yeah, well, actually, it's a, a trompe l'oeil, trick of the eye. The vaulted ceiling is lower at the bottom than at the top, and William would have seen that at the Palazzo Raspoli when he visited there. And he got Charles Barry to take the measurements of each step and send them out to Italy, and then it was assembled when it was brought back to Paul. I have to say, actually, the um, English weather is being rather Mediterranean to us, so there is some golden sunlight we are pouring lucky. in. This, this, I imagine, is just how William John Banks would have liked it to have looked every day. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh, beautiful. So you come up, 
And there are the gardens laid out very formally. That's very pretty. Yeah, that's another trompe l'oeil because the beds at the far end are actually wider than the beds closest to the window so that it all looks in perfect symmetry when you look from here. And is it all part of the same scheme? So what I can see around me, it's an elegant white marble floor checkered with black squares and a lot of very then actually quite heavy, dark, what's, what is it, bronze, the statuary? They are bronze, yes. And they were commissioned by William John from Baron Carlo Marachetti, whose most famous commission were the lions in Trafalgar Square. Ornate and majestic yes. in style. Yeah. I'm almost being blinded by the morning sunlight that's pouring in through the window. Was this all part of the original scheme as well? Yes. William John visited a plate glass manufactory and saw the technique and decided that that would be exactly what he wanted for this place so that there would be no glazing bars. So it's very modern in its own way too. State of the art. I don't want to be pathetic, but do you mind if we move out of the sunlight? Absolutely. I'm just walking into the dining room, which is weeping with world-class art. There's a Tintoretto that I'm just passing behind me. And I'm here to meet Christine Sitwell, who is the Paintings Conservation Advisor for the National Trust. Hello, nice to see you. You're standing underneath one particular, looks to me, biblically-themed painting. What's significant about this one? It's the Judgment of Solomon the classic story of the two mothers who are claiming the same child. William buys it as a Giorgione. In 1903, Bernard Berenson, who is the great art historian of Italian paintings, says it's by Sebastiano del Piombo. But, you know, that's still a great artist. So we believe he trained with Giorgione. So we still have a great work of art, which just shows William Banks's taste. And he buys it as an unfinished painting which infuriates his father, because his father says, you know, why are you buying something that's not even finished? But I find that interesting, because this painting's been very controversial. Banks sees it as a painting that's unfinished. But at some point during its history here at Kingston Lacey, a restorer finished it. So, for example, he evidently paints in the baby, which is the mm -hmm. central feature and is missing in the painting. And it becomes a dilemma for the trust when we are given Kingston Lacey as to what to do with the painting, and it's decided to clean all the overpaint off and the discolored varnish and take it back to what we think was what Banks saw when he purchased it. Really fascinating, because I was going to say to you, where's the baby <laughs> in this story? Exactly. There's a lovely detail, isn't there, that when, when he brought it back, we hear from his mother writing in her diary, she says that... William horrified his father, having drawn £500 yeah. to pay for an unfinished painting. Exactly, yes. I mean, why would you spend so much money on something that's not even finished? But, you know, I think this is where Banks is so wonderful. He realises it's a great painting. As well as his extensive jaunts around Europe, William Banks also embarked on pioneering journeys through the Middle East in the early 19th century. He visited Mount Sinai, Syria and Jerusalem. He travelled widely in Egypt, taking accurate records of recently discovered Egyptian chamber tombs, monuments and temples, often copying hieroglyphs and ancient wall paintings by candlelight. As he progressed, Banks sent back great loads of paintings, carvings and antiquities, which now form the Egyptian collection at Kingston Lacey. 
And now here we are in the Egyptian room. This is where we've housed William John's collection of Egyptian artefacts, which he acquired when he was one of the first Englishmen to actually go exploring Egypt. Is this my friend Ramses II here? Yes, it's, uh, we call it the Striding God, and um, it was discovered upside down in the fernery. No. Yes, we think possibly William John sent it back and uh, he was just sending so much stuff back that they weren't sure what to do with it. So they popped it there and there it remained until the National Trust took over. This was the most powerful man on earth in yeah. the Bronze Age. He's depicting himself here as an Egyptian deity. Beautiful, slender, gorgeous, sexy sandstone sculpture. I can't believe somebody tossed that way into a flower bed. It's difficult to believe, isn't it? He was away for a long time, wasn't he? Banks. Yeah. Yes, yes, he was in Egypt for approximately seven years. Some say William John was using it as an escape from his responsibilities as the heir to the Banks family. But really, he was in love with Egypt. He was a great explorer, loved the adventure, loved going to places where other Englishmen had never been before. That's right. There are these stories, aren't they, of him dressing as a kind of Berber tribesman and, and infiltrating native cultures. Yeah, that's correct and he was a, a very adventurous man very brave so we're looking at four sketches on the wall i think that's why i've got respect for him he's not just a kind of magpie he really cares about the monuments that he's visiting and discovering and here i mean you can tell very very fine detail of the architecture and the archaeology yeah, he was very meticulous in his drawings, but this is actually the tip of the iceberg. We've got over 1,200 at the Dorset History Centre. And Sorry, 1,200 drawings? 1,200 drawings. They're being made available now as part of the Banks Archive project. But therefore we do owe him a debt of gratitude, because presumably there's stuff in there that's vanished since. He was recording sites as they were discovered, and in fact one of the sites he went to at Palmyra was recently destroyed by Islamic State terrorists. Well, thank goodness he made a record of it. There are clearly ethical implications to the fervent collecting of that stupendous traveller, as Byron called William Banks, that he indulged on his overseas adventures. One of the things that William acquired as he explored the Nile was what I can see now ahead of me on the South Lawn, a 30-foot high pink granite obelisk. Now, of course, this obelisk, which dates to the 14th century BC, is far more than just a garden feature. It's a valuable part of the story of Egyptology. The obelisk actually comes from the sacred island of Philae. And thanks to his classical education, William Banks was able to make out the names Ptolemy and Cleopatra among the mix of Greek words and hieroglyphs on the shaft. And this work proved to be one of the vital first steps for scholars trying to decipher the language of the ancient Egyptians. So what's now dappled by English sun is a crucially important relic. Bernie King's met me again. I mean, what do you think about all of this, Bernie? Do you think that this is a good example of appreciation and preservation, or is plonking an Egyptian obelisk in your back garden, is that just cultural appropriation? Well, it's certainly unusual, but given the light of current events in the Middle East, I would say that there's a very real chance that this could be a target for terrorists. And so by doing what he did, William John has been able to preserve it for future generations. It must have been a bit of a job, though, getting this particular obelisk back here. 
I don't think he realised it was going to take seven years when he discovered it. And was it heralded and celebrated once it got onto these shores? Yes, the Duke of Wellington sent a gun carriage that had been used in the Battle of Waterloo to help bring it back to Kingston Lacey. And then in 1827 he came down and laid the foundation stone and actually stayed in the house. And, and is there any chance that the Egyptians might ask for it back? I really hope not. Certainly from what I've seen when people come here, they do love it. And you do get the sense that it is engendering a respect and interest and delight in that long distant world. William Banks was a man who lived life to the full. Skilled artist, intrepid explorer, classical scholar, he was also a close friend of Lord Byron. He was gay, but was hopelessly indiscreet in his relationships at a time when homosexuality was illegal. The Duke of Wellington got him out of serious trouble once, but when in 1841 Banks was caught in an intimate situation with a soldier in a London park, Wellington told Banks that he was on his own. Banks skipped bail in order to avoid execution and spent the last 14 years of his life living in exile in Venice. Forbidden by law from visiting the house that his family had owned for generations, he had to make the finishing touches to Kingston Lacey from a distance. Much darker already in here, walking through on very splendid... What are they? Oak floorboards, these? Back in Dorset... Bernie King took me into the Spanish room, which was finished while William Banks was in exile. So this is a completely different feel. We've walked into a very handsome room. You've got these kind of brilliantly Baroque gilt paintings, all in big golden frames. What's that on the wall, Bernie? Is it leather? It is. It was used in Venice as a protection against the damp and this has been embossed and gilded. Unfortunately, a no doubt well-meaning member of the Banks family decided to varnish it, which instantly dulled it and sealed in all the imperfections. Right. But we can just about see fighting its way to the surface is beautiful decorations on the leather itself. Those were original, were they? They were absolutely original. And William John transformed what was the dining room into his golden room. And this would have been a very bright, shiny, ornate room when it was first constructed. Um, the golden ceiling that you can see above us, bought as a copy from the Palazzo Contarini in Venice for £100. <laughs> as well as buying and gathering in all this art, can we see his personal touches in the house? Absolutely, in this very room. If we have a look at the wonderful Pietra Dura marble door panels down at the far end there, and these were designed by William John. There's an absolute flourish and riot of colour of the marble. What's rather sweet is... It's quite English in some ways as well, so there's a little bunch of holly and snowdrops with a robin underneath. So it's a really nice integration of the English and something very Mediterranean. It is, but the irony was that William John probably didn't see it because a lot of it was installed while he was in exile. It's terrible to think that, isn't it? Because, well, firstly, because we're just used to having freedom of movement, but also... It's so important if you're imagining a grand decorative scheme like this, the one thing you want to see is it all in situ, is it all coming together? Absolutely, and he was a man of meticulous detail. This is themed a Spanish room. Why do you think he particularly liked this one? Well, he was one of the first 
Englishman to recognise the merit of Spanish art. And while he was there during the Peninsular Wars with the Duke of Wellington, he spent a lot of time evading the fighting and adding to his collection of paintings. He is interested in Spanish paintings, and that is unusual at the time, because they're considered as dark and overtly religious, you know, very somber. And there's even someone who writes, why would the English want Spanish paintings when they're so dark, when we want cheerful subjects, landscapes in our country houses? I'm here with Christine Sitwell in the Spanish room, looking just above me. I have to say, that looks like Las Meninas. And it is world famous. People will all know it. So you've got the little infanta being given a glass of water. There's a boy kicking a dog. And then there's the painter himself staring quite challengingly out from behind a great canvas. But I've seen the original in the Prado, so it can't be. You're right. The original is in the Prado. William Banks buys it as a sketch by Velázquez. But over the years, there's been research about this painting, and we now believe that it's by his son-in-law, Del Masso. Do you think that Banks would have cared that it was a copy and, and not by Velasquez himself? Well, he might have cared a little bit, but we have to remember that you know, in the 19th and 18th centuries, copies were held in higher esteem than we hold them today because it was the only way to get works of art. You can't have Velasquez making 20 paintings of this particular scene. And so to have a copy, which is by his son-in-law, who also is a recognized artist, is a great achievement and nothing really to be ashamed of. Is that your favorite painting in the room? I certainly like this painting because it's interesting, but we have to remember that there is one painting in this room which is indeed a Velázquez, and that is the Cardinal Massimi, which is just to the right of Las Maninas, and it's a portrait of the cardinal, and he is in these sort of luscious, really deep blue robes, which signify his significance as a representative of the Pope. And one of the interesting things that has been discovered is that the color of the pigment is actually ultramarine. That's mm. lapis lazuli, that really rare and expensive pigment. And to have it on a Spanish painting is unusual. It's not a pigment that the Spanish artist used. But even Banks was aware of the significance of this color because he says this has a tone or color unlike a lot of other Spanish paintings. And I think he had that rare skill of being a true connoisseur, someone who knew not only what he wanted, but the quality of what he wanted. Okay, so I wanted to bring you to a place where not many people get to go. My sitting room. This is remarkable. So you live here the whole time? Absolutely. It's one of the perks of the job. Who used this originally? We believe that this was William John's sitting room. It would make sense because it's a unique design compared to any of the other rooms in the house. It has lovely curved walls, the shell niche in the window. So this would probably have been his man cave, I think. So it's his equivalent of the potting shed. This is where he comes to have a little moment. Yes, because there's ornate decoration everywhere you look. It's the only room in the entire house that's got curved walls, curved doors. And in fact, if you look at the crazed pattern on the marble of the fireplace, that can only have been for William John. It's kind of funky, isn't it? I mean, it's very modernist, really. Onyx or something? What's the stone or marble? It is marble, yes. Different types of cut marble. I mean, he obviously just was different. When you live here, 
do you feel a bit closer to the man? Do you think you understand him a bit better? Oh, yes. I get the impression William John would have been extremely sad at having to leave Kingston Lacey. He was in the middle of renovating the place that he loved and he had a faithful retainer, Seymour, my predecessor, if you like, and he would have been helping him to manage his affairs and also oversee some of the renovations along with William's sister Anne. But it must have really pained him to have to do all that from abroad, knowing that he may not ever see his house again. It's such a shame that he couldn't finally realise the great vision that he had for the place. And that's the sad thing, really, because he was a very intelligent, very articulate, very artistic man. And the fact that he couldn't see out his days in the house and the estate that he loved is just really, really sad. There are these stories that he disguised himself as a woman and crept back in. Do we actually have any hard evidence that he managed to make it back here? Yes, we do. Several letters that he wrote complain about the hinges on the Vatican doors in the saloon being mounted proud of the jam as opposed to being mounted flush, which were his instructions, although we don't have any hard evidence that he dressed up as a woman. Really telling, isn't it? So he's kind of risked life and limb to make it back here. But what interests him is something as fine as the detail of the hinge arrangements. Absolutely, a very meticulous man. Where did he die? He died in Venice on the 15th of April, 1855, probably in a rented apartment in a palazzo. Fortunately, though, he was allowed to be repatriated and he's buried in the family crypt at Wimborne Minster. I I don't want to be too fey, but do you feel there's something of his spirit still around the place? The whole house oozes his spirit. This is his creation, his masterpiece, and he lives on through it. It is a huge treat coming here and being surrounded by all this world-class art. And also what's interesting is that neuroscientists and philosophers alike now think that human harmony is best achieved through a mixing and a mingling of the different. So I totally get Banks and his wild enthusiasm for stories and art of all kinds an enthusiasm that's given us a spectacular of intercontinental art history. I wonder if the best way to deal with Banks's collection today is not just to love all of this, but to learn from it. In fact, to do as William Banks did, to delight in genius of all kinds from many variegated cultures and to use this repository of shared memory to look back out at the world with fresh eyes and with open minds. For more information about Kingston Lacey, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Kingston Lacey. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, this is part of a 10-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes's 10 Places on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. Trust. 
autumn in the garden, whether it's raking, harvesting, planting or planning next year's big show or the winter's big task, there's always lots to do. It never really stops. Which is why the National Trust has created a brand new podcast all about our gardens, hosted by me, Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I really can't wait to walk you around some of the country's most stunning gardens, sharing their stories, secrets and talking to the amazing people who help to look after these beautiful places and changing landscapes. If you subscribe, we'll even give you a few extra programmes throughout the month too. So find us now by searching for the National Trust Gardens podcast. And in the meantime, if you're at Stourhead or any other National Trust garden, say hello as you wander our estates.